Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and happy, happy New Year. I don't know why, but for some reason, just telling people Happy New Year just kind of, I don't know, it puts a little spring in your step and a little joy in your life. It's, its uh, I don't know, there was something about walking around and saying Happy New Year to people that I got a different reaction than I did when I was saying Happy Holidays and things like that. Maybe it's because the holidays were over and I was so glad the holidays were over. So it was really just this innate feeling of relief that we had all survived the holidays. But anyway, Happy New Year to all of you. And I want you to all know that um, I am so excited about my guest today. I cannot think of two people that I should have more than the two people that I have to welcome in a new year to uh, have you listen to what their focus is all about and to somehow have that be on your list of resolutions or or any kind of a change or emphasis that you could possibly have in your life. And so I'm very, very thrilled to have my guest today and just to wish all of you a happy new year. And I'm hoping that, you know, that you have on your resolution list things that do not involve losing weight or counting calories or getting on a scale that that your resolutions have something more to do with um, making your life better through service and and all, but not not in a in a way that was going to put stress and pressure on you but in a way that that you find your your path yourself and i hope that that's more of a resolution that you have uh, i i so tire of the ads that are going to bombard all of us now with weight loss and getting healthy and and i i i wish that that could be something that we all do naturally throughout the year and not have it be something that we put pressure on ourselves that we, you know, three days after, here it is January 4th, have all of you had candy, you know, and you're already feeling, you know, down and, and, and badly about yourselves because you, you know, it's only four days into the new year and you're already messing up. So we don't want that kind of resolution. We want resolutions that are going to give us hope and courage. And I think my guests today are going to do just that. So let me tell you about the amazing guests that I have today. I have Joni Aldridge and Christopher Jerry, and you are going to be astonished at what they have done with their lives. Joni is the CEO of Cancer Lifeline Publications, and she produces an international radio program that is available both live and on demand. And the reason for her radio show is to spread the message of hope. Joni advocates and speaks out for patient rights and education cancer families, caregiver rights, and cancer care legislation in honor of her husband and mother who were both lost to cancer. And my other guest is Christopher. And Christopher Jerry is a writer, a speaker, a radio host, and patient safety advocate, Christopher Jerry. And she he is the um, president and CEO of the Emily Jerry Foundation, which was founded to raise awareness about preventable medical errors with particular emphasis on medication errors. And he did all of this. All of this came about after an intravenous compounding error 
by an untrained pharmaceutical technician, which caused the tragic death of his sweet little baby daughter, Emily. And after that event, Chris dedicated his life to preventing other families from suffering through a similar heartbreak. And when you get on Jerry and Joni's foundation websites and you you see what they went through and why they have dedicated their lives to advocacy, it's absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. They are both actually uh, co-authors on a new book that has just come out. And it is um, actually has been submitted for a Pulitzer Prize, which is amazing. And uh, again, I feel so blessed to have them on my show today. Uh, their new book is called Adv- Advocacy Heals You, 15 Keys to Fast Track Results and Emotional Fulfillment. And this is the only complete book that focuses on advocacy from the event to emotional healing. And I think that's really important that, that you travel through with Joni and Chris that journey of the event that causes uh, you, you to take action and then the emotional healing that has to come from something as tragic as medical errors or having to advocate for a loved one that is ill that you have to be their spokesperson. And, you know, their, their book talks about, you know, questions that people ask. Who, who, who am I? You know, why, why, why should I do something? Or why not me? Why, why shouldn't I be somebody that does something? Or why did these things happen to me? And, you know, they talk about the basics of advocacy, you know, the event that happens and, and how that turning point changes your life forever and it changes your perspective on things. They, they talk about the need through the event that happens to you to learn something about that event, to, to become, you know, um, to become why to to answer the question why did something like this happen and how you need to be the person that might need to act on on the event and and how that could become a call for you how that that call can be an internal need that that happens and and that you need to be the person that that sets something in action and how you can start your advocacy work and how you can begin to speak up for yourself or or for someone else and and the benefits that come from doing all of that. Those are the things that advocacy is all about. So we're going to welcome Joni and Christopher to the show this morning. Good morning. Wow. Hello, Renee. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, both of you. And I know you're both calling from different parts of the world. My husband and I just got back from Nashville and honestly, um, I'm looking around my home thinking, how long would it take for me to pack? And move and get a U-Haul and move myself to Nashville because it was a wonderful part of the world. And uh, the weather was much better than when we arrived back here in Portland. So uh, I hope oh, all of I'll you bet. are finding the new year without ice and snow. Well, come well, down we just, here and, and, and move with me, Renee. Don't go up to Cleveland with Chris. Right, oh. right. South Carolina. Very good okay. recommendation. <laughs> yep. and, and, and not Nashville. Uh, I don't know. I think the beach is better, but just saying. Well, so, yeah, and I'll, I, I'm afraid, Joni, I'm going to have to side with you because I grew up in Illinois. So Chris and I, you know, I, I'm already familiar with that part of the world. And oh, dang, those winters are hard. <laughs> the winters are hard. Yes, they are. I would prefer to uh, to be able to live up here during the spring, the summer, yes. and maybe a small portion of the fall, and then the rest of the time, uh, be down in, in, in South Carolina around where, uh, where Joni, uh, currently, uh, hangs her hat. 
Absolutely. Uh, much, much nicer. Much nicer. <laughs> Well, and Joni, you probably, uh, my husband and I, Portland is kind of known for being a friendly city, and I think it is comparative, you know, comparatively if you're comparing Los Angeles or maybe some of the other, you know, Washington, D.C., but boy, you don't find friendly until you go down south, and and uh, I just was enjoying the ma'ams and the excuse me's and the have a great day and and it it wasn't forced. It was natural, and, and it was just such a wonderful experience. So I, I think I might be heading Joni's direction. <laughs> there you go. Well, come on yeah. down, or come on over, yeah. rather, over and down. Exactly. <laughs> well, I would like for each of you to take a moment. Let's start with Joni. Uh, tell us just a brief little a synopsis of, of how – you went from just being a, a, a normal wife and, and mom, and and, ha- and what happened to make you such a a crusader for advocacy? Well, it's interesting because I was really a financial advisor for a major corporation, uh, not what you think of for an advocate, of course. And uh, the you know you pretty much said it in the bio. My husband was diagnosed with uh, late stage dangerous cancer at the age of forty three, and we lost him, unfortunately, to metastatic brain cancer because of some errors in his treatment right from the offset. Um, you know, that, that journey, that journey through cancer, as anybody of the 1,500 people that are going to be diagnosed today in the United States, uh, every man, woman, and child in that group could tell you that uh, there's nothing like that moment, and you're a novice. You really don't know, and cancer is a disease that's so different from any other disease as much as cerebral palsy is with mm-hmm. your son. But um, there are so many uh, needs to be addressed in cancer, and you can't just take the first oncologist and the first opinion. You have to get that second opinion. You really have to drive home your options and uh, ask what your options are. But uh, unfortunately, the first doctors gave Gordon standard treatment, and after five months of treatment, he was three times worse than before they ever started treatment in in a critical life situation at Mm -hmm. that point. And so... To make a, a, I'm going to give you the condensed version, uh, and you can certainly read about both Chris and mine's story and 95 other advocates and 58 other wonderful charitable organizations and Advocacy Hill Shoots book. Um, after Gordon died, tragically, after we fought so hard for two years to save him through three outpatient stem cell transplants, um, I, I tried to go back to my life. Um, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, Renee, and, and I know Chris will appreciate this because of what we were talking about this morning. Um, you know, when you get through something like that, you think, well, something ought to be done. Mm-hmm. And the next thought in your head is, well, let somebody else do it because mm-hmm. I don't have the training, the education, the, you know, the, the wherewithal. I'm trying to get my life back on track. I've been through enough change. You know, you you think through those, you know, you think through all those thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the thing that we all should be thinking about, just like with you, with your, your wonderful new foundation, is, uh, you know, the problem is if you leave it for the next patient, there is going to be that next patient mm-hmm. or that next victim. You're already assuming that there's going to be somebody else, and that's what advocates do is they, 
they go through an event in their life like I did with Gordon, and they see the need, um, in my case, for patients to be empowered, alert, and involved in their care, um, patients and caregivers and families, really, because cancer is a family affair. Um, you know, and then you, you feel an internal call, which is mm-hmm. what I did to change their life. And that was seven books ago, eight radio shows ago. <laughs> you know, so I, I started out thinking, well, who's going to listen to me? And mm-hmm. people listen to me all the time. So um, it's an amazing gift. Advocacy is an amazing gift. And and how do you, Joni? How do you talk to people? Um, and 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 you know, I think that there's probably stages of this where you find yourself able to be an advocate without anger, to be able to instruct people that what they need to do, as you mentioned, getting two or three different opinions, questioning things. Uh, seeking outside maybe information there or, or ideas that have been given to you and, and questioning even those ideas or, or diagnoses. How do you go and begin to teach advocacy but, and, but let go of the anger and advocate with respect for the profession, you know, that is so necessary that we are so grateful for, but yet we have to question? How do you handle that? You know, it's interesting because we walk a fine line every day, Chris and I do, and I'm sure that, you know, he'll have much more to say about the anger uh, because of, you know, he, he lost this little baby girl in a really mm-hmm. strong moment-to-moment tragedy. But um, what we have to do is we have to look at a couple of things, uh, and, and Chris can talk a lot about forgiveness. Um, when When we go to the doctor anymore, uh, because of the state of healthcare, and Chris has a great new radio show coming up that's going to talk about this. Uh, we do, you don't even know that probably yet, Renee. It's going to be brand new. It's going to be called Surviving Healthcare Today for this very mm-hmm. reason. You, mm-hmm. we, we're past the time in our, in our existence in humanity when a doctor and his nurse are all that any patient needs to survive a healthcare crisis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and the people in healthcare will tell you that themselves. Doctors mm-hmm. have sometimes as little as five, three to five minutes to spend with patients. Uh, when, even with catastrophic illnesses, uh, nurses, you know, have up to 20 to 24 patients in their care in the hospital. You know, so what this is doing is it means that we all need to be more involved and the doctors themselves will tell you that. Truthfully, you know, Chris and I don't go against the grain and we don't doctors bash and we don't tell people not to go to the doctor. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that, you know, we live in a society where you have to do your due diligence. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a true fact of life and, and even the people in the healthcare community will, will tell you that very same thing. Oh, that's very, excellent. very good, uh, very good point, Joni, to speak more to what, what, uh, Joni is saying, um, I do, uh, with, with my, uh, very passionate work in, in being an active part of the solution to preventable medical errors like what, what claimed, uh, my, my beautiful daughter Emily's life back in, uh, 2006. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm working with clinicians around, uh, the nation, uh, actually on a, on more of a global level now. 
um, day in and day out. And I think the point that 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 uh, that Joni's uh, trying to make here, and that I really want to emphasize, is the fact that even despite what has happened with Joni's case and with mine, mm-hmm. and the very tragic uh, outcomes that, that we both experience with people that we love with all of our hearts and souls, despite that emotional trauma, Joni and I both have the utmost respect for modern day medicine in the sense that we live at a very exciting time in medicine. I mean, community we're now curing cancers mm-hmm. that that just a couple of years ago you know a terminal diagnosis of death sentence right, uh, right. my mother my mother case in point uh my mom uh shortly after emily's passing uh my mother uh uh overcame and and survived for large diffuse b-cell lymphoma and she's still with us today, and she's one of the strongest women I know today. Right. And so I think I think to speak more to Jody saying, my interactions are almost exclusively with uh, the clinicians around the country, and um, I give a lot of uh, uh, lectures at different medical facilities, medical schools, schools of pharmacy, um, to people that are are practicing. Med- Day in and day out, and I, I'm here to tell you, one of their biggest fears is having in, uh, a human error enter into the equation during the course of treatment for anyone, right? Or multiple, which human is errors. which is probably impossible because we are humans, and so that well, must be a, an absolute fear that they live with constantly, daily, hourly. It, it, it really is because think about let's let's pull back the layers here for a moment. Um, what what is the real reason logically that that anyone uh, would dis, decide any young person would decide for to be, to become a physician to to go through years and years of schooling living like a student, uh, right? So on and so it's forth. certainly it's not typically, money anymore. No, no, no that's true. Anymore. I can tell you that. And, and when you pull back those layers and look at it from that perspective, the real reason most people choose that career in, in, in medicine, uh, whether it be a nurse, a physician, uh, a pharmacist, what have you, is typically because they're the kind of people that have this innate sense of empathy and compassion towards other human beings, number one, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Secondly, they probably have an interest in science. In that kind of thing. But bottom line, the point I'm trying to make here is they got into that profession because they wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. They had this immense amount of empathy and compassion. They wanted to have some miraculous cures during the course of their career. Mm-hmm. They certainly, at the end of the day, those kind of people are not the kind of people that, uh, that typically take their, their, their jobs lightly or would want to do anything to jeopardize the safety or that miraculous outcome by making a bad decision. Exactly. Uh, And and Christopher, go back a little bit and tell our listeners Mm -hmm. about your, a a little bit about Emily's story so that they can have a little bit more of a background of, of, of what, what drew you into this. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to do my best to uh, condense this version as well and just yeah. like how I, I, I can talk on and on about it. Um, I was living the American dream. I'm the, I'm the proud father of, of three amazing uh, children. Uh, my whole career was uh, spent in medical imaging, uh, doing uh, involved in, in international business, working overseas with with organizations like uh, Siemens Medical Systems in Erlangen, in Germany, Philips Medical Systems in the Netherlands, so on and so forth. But I was in and out of it's the perfect training for what I do today because I was in right. and out of medical facilities. Uh, throughout Europe and some in the Middle East and what have you, getting a chance to see how how hospitals uh, and medical facilities, treatment facilities, worked in these different areas and working with those clinicians and things like that. And um, so we were living the dream, and three wonderful, amazing children, and I'm one of those people that uh, thinks every child born into this world is such a miracle, Anyway, mm-hmm. and I was just enjoying fatherhood and and um, very hands-on kind of dad. I noticed uh, one day when I was watching my three children play in the backyard, uh, you know, uh, Emily uh, had just uh, started walking and running around, and you know how they're curious and they're into everything, and mm-hmm. uh, once they get that mobility, you know, you know what breaks loose. Um, and Emily was, was chasing her brother and sister around the backyard and, and just, you know, they were all, all three of them were having a great time. And I noticed that every once in a while, Emily would stop and grab her side and wince and paint. And it would only last about a nanosecond and she'd be right back to doing what she was doing. Um, and I noticed that probably three or four times during the course of the afternoon. Hmm. And so what I did was uh, I, I told Emily's uh, mother about this when she arrived home, and um, we both uh, decided to, to take Emily into a leading uh, pediatric hospital here uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. They ran her through the MRI scanner, and lo and behold, she's got a grapefruit-sized mass <sighs> in her abdomen. And so we were shocked. And so they recommended um, uh, three-day rounds of, of chemotherapy, and and each month, uh, three day we'd have to bring her in for three days, and uh, we did that. They told us all of the horrible side effects to expect, uh, i.e., you know, flu-like symptoms. Uh, she'd be losing her beautiful blonde ringlets of hair, losing weight, so on and so forth. But that's a good sign that she's responding well to her the chemotherapy, that the tumor's responding. And when we started down that road and my little girl didn't get sick, I, I don't think she vomited one time during the course of treatment. She didn't start losing weight at all. In fact, she was their first pediatric oncology patient to uh, actually gain a pound. Hmm. And she didn't start losing her hair until about January of 2006. And this all began in the fall of 2005. Hmm. And so January rolls around and we were starting to wonder, you know, well, Jesus, that tumor really responding or do we need to consider switching to another course of treatment? They run her through the MRI scanner again. And uh, lo and behold, a miracle had occurred. 
their words, the oncologist's words, not mine. They had never mm -hmm. seen anything like it. Little Emily's tumor had completely disappeared. There wasn't even any residual scar tissue as they had been uh, anticipating. Wow. And we were elated, to say the least. Right. So was, was her treatment team elated? And they recommended one final three-day round of chemotherapy just to make sure there was no residual cancer cells remaining in her body that could pop up later in life and cause her difficulty. Mm -hmm. And on the very last day, on the very last day, the day I was supposed to take her home, my little girl home cured, is the day that uh, a pharmacy technician who did not have the proper training or core competency to know any better by her own admission, the hospital pharmacy was out of standard bags of saline with 0.9% sodium chloride, which is kind of like McDonald's running out of French fries or cheeseburgers. Yeah. Should never happen. Right. The pharmacy technician thought she was doing the right thing because she was accustomed to seeing saline solution on the bag, pre-printed on the bag. She thought she was doing the right thing by taking an empty compounding bag, and she saw three vials of hypertonic saline, which is 23.4% in concentration. And she manually withdrew and filled the bag full of this hypertonic saline. Um and used that as the base solution for Emily's chemotherapy. Got set up to my daughter's room, and when someone's overdosed on sodium chloride, it causes immediate cerebral edema or brain swelling. And uh, my little girl was on, uh, they had to put her on life support. And, um, and uh, three days later, uh, my former wife and I had to make the worst decision of our lives, which was to take... Emily off of life support after multiple EEG showed little to no brain activity. Oh my God. And it was at that, that point, that point that I, I knew immediately the day that we made that decision, that awful decision we had to make, I knew that there was no bringing little Emily back. Right. But I knew, I knew in my heart, I, that's when I had the idea for the Emily Jerry Foundation. I knew in my heart I had to do everything I possibly could to make absolutely certain that this does not happen to another baby or child or another uh, family or another patient, period. Right, right, right. That Is that something similar thing. that Kevin Costner, I know, had something with his twins? Uh, that uh, yeah. was yes, was they, that a pharmaceutical were, uh, technician error as yeah. well? Well, it was a pharmacy technician error in terms of, of loading what's called in, in all medical facilities now. They have what's called a PIXA system, for um, it, which is kind of like a conveyor cataloging system for storing all the medications and then retrieving them using barcoding and what have you. Mm, mm. So they stock all the medications into this PIXA. Think of it as a big drug cabinet to keep mm. everything organized. And what happened there with Dennis Quaid's twins was uh, it was a heparin overdose. His twins were inadvertently given an adult dose of heparin, a blood thinner, uh, which almost uh, cost their lives um, because a pharmacy technician who misread the labels, instead of loading the Pixis with um, the pediatric doses of heparin, inadvertently loaded the Pixis with adult doses of heparin, which both oh. happen to have 
blue, similar blue labels on the front. The adult version was dark blue, and the pediatric version was light blue. Oh, my gosh. So, so. you know, I think the thing that, that is the hardest for people to hear, and you must teach this when you're, when you're, when you and Joni are talking about advocacy, is the fear that we have as the average Joe, not medically trained, normal person. We don't want to, A, get blackballed in the hospital. We don't want to be right. the person that everyone's talking about at the nurse's quarters, that difficult parent that's in the room, you know. And, and so there's that fear. And yet you, you are also told, I mean, there's even signs in the hospitals about asking the doctors, did you wash your hands? Or, you know, so even saying, um, uh, can I double check that? Or are you sure that's not this blah, blah, blah? You know, once you get to know your child, if you're going through something like you did over a period of months where you start getting familiar, I, I remember one time having a doctor say to me, are you a nurse? Because I'm rattling off all these terms and things. They're asking me questions about my son. Well, obviously, you get you get to know what your child's care is and and the things, the procedures that are going on. So well, you start well, sounding like you're a medical it, professional. But yeah, well, how do knows, you how do you teach who knows, people that? And this goes back to what Joni was saying about uh, earlier in the conversation, I believe. About you know, there is a distinct need for patients to be engaged in their healthcare, not only in their own healthcare, but in the healthcare of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. They're children that are receiving treatment. There is not a darn thing with wrong. Who knows? Who knows their children better than their own mother? I do believe, uh, as a father, I do believe in mother's intuition, but I believe fathers have intuition too. Yeah. Who knows their children better mm-hmm. than their parents? Right. In terms of 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 little subtle indications that a physician who has never met your child before is not going to pick up on. Right. And, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna what Joni and I points. are trying to teach people oh, is, 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 that, is that it's okay to speak up. Right. Yeah, two points that I want to make here, uh, and, and we bring them up in the book, Renee. Uh, number one, choose your battles wisely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I was sitting in the doctor's Great office. Point. I'll, I'll make this brief. Uh, I was sitting in a doctor's office with my sister. She had some kind of growth in her spinal column. And so I thought that was necessary enough. My sister's not a very good advocate for herself, so I thought that was pretty important. And so I went to the uh, doctor's appointment with the neurosurgeon with her. And um, very, very good point there. Always, always, always have somebody go with you uh, mm-hmm. if you can, uh, particularly not if you stub your toe, but certainly if it's important, if it mm-hmm. looks like it's going to be a serious issue. And the first thing I did walking in, because the first thing I always do, is I want to see copies of the medical test results. Sorry. Mm, yeah. My sister paid for yeah. them, you know. So I'm, I'm sitting there, my sister's sitting there, and I asked the nurse for it, and she looks at me and she says, I can only give them to your sister. Well, that was stupid. Where's your sign? You know, and where, where's Bill Ingvall right. when you need him? You know, right. she was sitting right there. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so you know, hey, it's like, all right, well, and then she looked at me and she told me the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Uh, it's a HIPAA law that I cannot give you copies or your sister copies of the medical test results until the until the doctor's gone over them with you. <laughs> I would That's get false. fired. <laughs> That's what she said. 
That's what she said. That's a lie. <laughs> well, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, I have two choices here. I can go off on this poor little girl like, right. uh, like a rocket ship, or I can wait five minutes and then I'm going to get a copy of the medical test results like I right. want. They will beat my hand before I leave the office. I was trying to cut to the chase so I could be prepared right. for the doctor got there. So you kind of have to choose your battles wisely. Um, and the other point that I want to make that Chris and I make very, very stringently in the book is often the things that you're going to do are not rocket science, like what you were just talking about, making sure to ask the doctor if they've washed their hands, the doctor or nurse. You know, we I, I actually did one of my shows. I called it from bedside to bedpan or bedpan to bedside, you know, for that <laughs> very reason. Uh, you know, is you know asking if the if the nurse or the nurse's assistant or the, or the physician has washed their hands. Now you don't have to do that if they're not going to touch you, but if they're going to touch you, then you need to know that they have washed their hands. So mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not the things that you're you're required to do, like asking for medical test results. You don't have to understand them, every word of them. But just you asking for them lets people know that you're mm-hmm. involved, that mm-hmm. you're engaged, as Chris says. I love right. that word. Yes. Well, and, so, and, and to speak ahead. more to what you're saying, uh, Joni, is another thing that, that, that your listeners, Renee, need, need to know, too, is to be engaged in your health care now today is easier than ever. Right. And one of the things that makes it easier than ever is... You have a right to see your medical records. There are no HIPAA uh, compliance issues uh, with even the facility, not only giving providing you the medical records, but if you have somebody that has a power of attorney, uh, you know, like I have for family members that I'm taking mm-hmm. care of and Joni mm-hmm. has had, mm-hmm. they have to provide the information that information that you've been given the power of attorney to have that's so good to know um, and and the reason i say we live in a time where it's easier for people to be engaged is because we have this thing called uh, the internet right and what you can do is you can take your test results now even if you're you know you're not a physician you're not a nurse you're not even a science person you can look at that report and and you can do the research simply by Googling the terms that are on that report to see what are the, 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 the typical levels. Um, what, are the, what is the typical range supposed to be in? And where right. are the values that, you're, that you or your, your loved one fall in? Right. And right. You, can, you can educate yourself on your condition on your particular form of cancer that's being treated. So many, there's so many useful resources on the internet that, that allow people to empower themselves and educate themselves before or during, uh, treatment. Right. Right. And I think that's so, that's so important that people feel confident enough to do that. And I, cause I know there's a, there's a little bit of a stigma around, you know, when people go into the doctor's offices and they've already done some research and there's, they say, you know, I think I have this, 
have this feeling over here and I believe that it's, you know, and they start rattling off all these medical terms and the doctors roll their eyes and they're like, oh, kill the internet, you know. So there's this stigma, but people, but it is such Dr. a great Google. tool. And it, it is something that, you know, let that go. Let it go. You have the right and you have to do that for yourself. Well, then it's well, up to, in, in my, in that example you just, re- you just referenced, uh, Renee, I, I, I think there definitely is those doctors, some of them that, that, that get offended. Right. By people trying to educate themselves. That to me, that is nothing more than arrogance. Right. Well, and, and here's is, another it, question. Why uh-huh. are they getting offended? Okay. Right. Because I, I will tell you this, uh, it, we used to, um, I'm sorry, Renee, Chris and I, give us a show and we're just going to like run off. Oh, no, I'm loving it. I'm sorry this is only an hour. I, I, Dave, are you out there? We need to uh, go. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, but, you know, we, we bring up this, this exact point and this is going to, this tells everyone why you have to, to be involved. Uh, there was a doctor, we used the story, it happened while we were working on the book, while Chris and I were working on the book, and we used it as an example. There was a doctor in Michigan just last year that um, diagnosed 250 patients with cancer that didn't have cancer. Okay? Mm. So think about it. There were There are three things that we preach that literally could have helped these people. I mean, how you sit back in awe. And you think if any of those people had done these three things, that they would have known that this doctor was the hope. But he literally had them believing that they had to follow him. And, and Chris and I were talking about it this week, Renee. We want our new mantra to be, if your doctor tells you to jump off a cliff, will you do it? You know, and these patients, right. these 250 patients literally did it. Uh, they were getting 10 times the treatment sometime they need, and they didn't need it. They didn't have cancer. But anyway, right. uh, number one, always get copies of all your medical test results. Number two, always look at the first doctor's visit as a first opinion. Always get a second opinion. And number three, know as much as you can about what's going on with your disease. No, right. sometimes the facts aren't pretty. If you're diagnosed with something horrific like esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, Gordon and I knew the odds of multiple myeloma before we ever went to his first doctor's appointment. Wow. But unfortunately, the, you know, it, it can be many things that, uh, you know, Chris and I both, unfortunately, money was a little bit of both of his situation and mine. And again, we're very honest about that in the book. Mm. When we first went to Gordon's first oncologist, we asked him about the Multiple Myeloma Institute in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he said, I've never seen anything good come out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, why did he say that? Then he misdiagnosed how, how critical Gordon's cancer was. It was not, he treated with standard treatment. It was very aggressive. And that's Uh. what put us in the hole. But... (sighs) No, I, I bet you money today that the hospital administrator at that facility was saying keep all cases of cancer in-house for treatment. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Chris's situation, who who in the world, and there, it's still a fact today, which makes Chris's um, his foundation so very important, who made the decision that untrained pharmaceutical techs could Compound intravenous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, in these particular situations, the truth 
is stranger than fiction. Because well, and you know, the first thing that I thought of when you were telling that story, Chris, is, you know, I have um, four boys and a grandson who's now going through the Boy Scout program. And the first mm-hmm. thing that they teach you is the buddy system. And so right. as you were talking, my first thought is, why isn't there a buddy system? Why isn't there a double check for any, especially, you know, when you're compounding things, that someone has to stand over your shoulder or check, check? Did you do this? Check, well, check, where there's another person. Well, they- Renee, they do have they do have double checks in place and 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 things like that. They are uh, supposed to be supervised uh, by a registered pharmacist, uh-huh. so on and so forth. But the case of the matter is is nobody even knew, including myself, as well as Emily's physicians, uh-huh. which uh, two of them that come to mind had uh, been at this medical facility for like twenty. Five, thirty years, even I, I want to say. I mean, the one one physician that I'm still friends with today, his three daughters actually had their babies at this facility, mm-hmm. and this particular physician wrote literally, literally thousands because he headed up pediatric surgery at the facility. Mm-hmm. He had written probably tens of thousands of scripts. For um, for I, intravenous medications going straight mm-hmm. into people's his patient circulatory systems, he had no idea that pharmacy technicians around the United States, in all of our nation's medical facilities, mm-hmm. pharmacy technicians compound virtually all all IV medications going into a person's circulatory system. And these are not pharmacists. Again, these are pharmacy technicians. No, they are supervised by pharmacists. But now what right. happens is, in the, what I found really appalling in 2006, after my daughter uh, died, I, I started researching things. Mm-hmm. I found out that in the state of Ohio in 2006, the only requirement to become a pharmacy technician was that you had your GED. Ah. <gasps> You know, I wondered about that whenever I go to the pharmacy to pick up medication I because I've heard was, so much about the was, training that pharmacists have to go through. And, and I'm looking at all these little people, even, and I'm like, did you did you go through training? You know? Wow. Precisely. And, yeah. and you know what? The real sad part of this is there are still six states in the United States. Any of your listeners that want to go to the Emily Jerry Foundation's uh, website, I mm-hmm. uh, can see uh, what the rules are in the individual states, but there's still six states in the United States, including New York State, which the only requirement to become a pharmacy tech is that you have a GED. And wow. most of the public, including the physicians, this is the point I was trying to make earlier, uh-huh. um, is even the physicians writing the scripts for those uh those medications, those intravenous medications, aren't even aware that pharmacy right. technicians compound virtually all IV medications. Wow. So you can have, in if you live in the state of New York, you can go to a place like New York Presbyterian where Dr. Oz practices. Right. And it, it, it's New York Presbyterian is a fantastic facility. Right. They're, they are saving lives. But you, the general public, I guarantee you, you walk in there and you ask them, who's who's compounding your mother's uh, IV medications for chemo treatments? 
Wow. And the doctors, well, the doctors will say, the doctors there will say, Dr. Oz would probably say, oh, I'm sure a registered pharmacist is Yes, exactly. Well, they're not. That's what you think, they're yeah. Not. And so in those states, if your only requirement is that you have a GED and you don't have any oversight by the state pharmacy board, then what's to stop, you know, you've got a, a 19, 20-year-old, uh, I'm going to call him a kid now because I'm an old guy at 48, um, you, you, you've got some uh, 20-year-old kid right out of uh, high school that uh, has an addiction issue. Mm. And, you know, with uh, controlled substances, what would be the great best place for a person with addiction issues to work? Oh, my gosh. Right. In a pharmacy. Right, right. And, there's and they certainly don't do it. They certainly don't do it, Renee, again, for the money. Because right. they only, they, a lot of these pharmacy techs, all they make is like $8 an hour. Whoa. Yeah. Hourly, they make an hourly wage and they're treated right. pharmacy technicians. And this is one of the things that, 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 that I've been advocating for for years. And Joni is becoming a big advocate for it as well. And it's nice to see her being so passionate about it is also is one of the things that we're advocating for is, um, is to get the medical community as well as the retail pharmacist, pharmacy community to stop treating pharmacy technicians like low-cost, unskilled hourly labor. Right. Which is what, is hap- what has happened in the United States, both in clinical and retail pharmacy. They are not hourly labor. Their, their jobs are vital. They're required. We have to have pharmacy technicians. Right. Pharmacy could not operate without them right but they need to be well trained competent and there needs to be oversight there needs to be continuing education requirements things of that nature yeah they need to have a little bit more training maybe right up there with your hairstylist who's mixing the chemicals that go on your head that could be you know we can start there that's an idea and you know the other thing make them wear a different color coat there is so much power in that. I know that sounds silly, but there is so much no. power in that white coat. And when you see well, someone right. with a white coat, you automatically assume authority. You're right. Well, yes. Great point. And if, but that example you just brought up, I was appalled. I was able to help. The good news here, if there is any good news, is, is I was able, this is how I got kind of started in my advocacy efforts or this work is, um, I was able to help get Emily's law passed here in the state of Ohio mm. um, in honor of my daughter. Uh, in January of 2009, it was signed off on by our governor, mm. uh, Ted Strickland, at that time. And now there is oversight by the Ohio State Pharmacy Board. There is a detailed background check that's done on everybody that applies to become a pharmacy technician to make sure that there's no trouble with the law and no addiction issues, things of that nature obviously, and there is continuing education requirements and, and things of that nature. So that's some good news that's that's come about, but we still need to get those other states to uh, pass, pass similar or more comprehensive legislation also. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, but, Chris but and Joni, we have about, we have about 10 is, minutes left. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what, what were we going to say, Chris? I was going to say in, in 2006, really quick, I was I was appalled that the guy that gives me my horrible haircuts uh, <laughs> had had to have a, a license prominently displayed on the mirror 
that he went to school, he or she went to school for six to, or it might have even been 12 months of cosmetology school before legally in the state of Ohio they could cut my hair. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Well, Chris and Joni, I mean, you guys have, unfortunately, really, over 20 years of advocacy experience, you know, something that you probably didn't wish that you, this was not a career choice that you would have, you know, chosen, but you do, you have this experience. And so just from listening to everything that you said, I can see why you decided to write the Advocacy Heals You book, The 15 Keys to Fast Track Results in Emotional Fulfillment. So, but tell everybody how writing the book and breaking it down into 15 key steps, how that has, you know, helped people and how, how that, Getting that book into people's hands is so important. Why that's so important? Well, I, I'm, I think I'll start there if that's okay, Chris. Um, sure. Because I think the biggest one for me, uh, and Chris usually tells people, um, I'm going to take yours too. <laughs> I'm going to, okay. I'm going to sabotage you, Chris, there. Uh, no, that's you know, okay. Every, every advocate is on a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, just like you. You, you're a tremendous advocate, and you're on a different path. And, uh, again, the pattern that we saw was there was an event, there was the need, and there was the call and the advocacy. Um, but what people don't tend to realize is the fact that when they go into advocacy, they believe that they're going in to help other people, which they truly are. But they mm-hmm. get this amazing backhanded healing that occurs, and they don't focus on themselves. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we feel is very important that people are going to learn in Advocacy Heals You is uh, the, um, the structure, uh, the uh, core values of advocacy, you know, the, the advocate first. You know, mm-hmm. look after yourself because how are you going to advocate to other people when you're not a good example yourself? And Chris, I have to tell you, one of the best stories in the book that's the most powerful is the hardest for him because we talk about how he got past the anger and the need for revenge and got into forgiveness mode because mm-hmm. um, Chris doesn't talk about it a lot, but Chris lost everything. When he lost mm-hmm. this little girl, he had absolutely nothing to do with her death. In fact, would have done everything in the world to prevent it. Mm-hmm. And yet he lost everything, including his wife, his home. Uh, I mean, he was destitute. And the next book we hope is going to be a book about dangerous grief and the mm-hmm. things that, you know, people go through when they don't mm-hmm. go through healthy grieving. But mm-hmm. I'll let you go, Chris. Well, because it, well, to, to, to speak to what you're saying, Joni, um, and thank you for saying all those things. Um, the thing that, 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 that people need to realize, and Joni and I stress in this book, is the fact that the book is not just about Joni's story and my story. Right. This book includes cases from from 95 of of the advocates that Joni and I have interviewed uh, over the years on our weekly radio talk show on iHeart called Advocacy Heals You. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and everybody, the point I want to make here is everyone's advocacy 
journey is uniquely different. Exactly. What this what this book ties together is though all the common strands that Joni and I have discovered over the years, all the common strands that we all share together advocating for causes that are near and dear to our hearts that are based on our events that have happened mm-hmm. personally to us because we all have adversity in our lives. Right. We all get blindsided from time to time in life, totally unexpectedly. And we're having to deal with it and you're feeling all alone. Well, this book shares with the readers the fact that no matter what you're going through, what dark moments you're going through, you're not the only one. There are others right. out there. Right. And, and, and there's this amazing network of people that even though we're all advocates and we're all advocating in slightly different areas or even uh, boldly different areas, we're all united in the fact that we're fighting for causes, using our life experience, we're fighting for causes that benefit other people. Right. I.e., my, my primary concern was, after Emily died, was making absolutely certain I was doing everything I possibly could to make sure, to implement positive change, but make sure that it doesn't happen to others. Right. And like Joni said, when I started on this journey, I didn't realize that I was going to get the blessing of healing. Right. I didn't realize that I was going to get all these other blessings to come about. Right. And and it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept because, you know, if you have, like you described faith, you know, faith is, is, is a belief in something unknown. Uh, and, and when you have that, when you come to that point in your grief experience where you realize that you can either continue to wallow, um, or you can take that grief and turn it into something. And it isn't, and it's a weird, it's a weird thing because it isn't like you sit back and go, well, Let's see, what could I do? Uh, oh, I know this is a great opportunity for me to become rich and famous. I'll take this, I'll right. take this, uh, uh, this event and I'll become rich and famous. That isn't what comes into your head. It's an almost no. unbelievable pull where you somehow get off the couch because someone is inside. You have this drive that you, this isn't going to happen again or I, I can help someone else or, you know, in my case, I could see you know, it's something as simple. I mean, it might sound so frivolous for people to get a van that's wheelchair accessible that they can get out of the house. But I know what it feels like to be house bound because you have a handicapped child that, that the right. world is not accessible to. And I could either sit there and it's, it's nothing compared to what you guys have gone through, but it was enough of a pull to go, I have to do something. I have to do something or I'm going to die too. And I'm going to become right. handicapped too. And so, People need to understand that this pull for advocacy, it does heal you. It did get me off the couch. It did get you out the door. It did, Joni, make you, you know, go and sit with other people that are going through this to help prevent what happened to you. And so advocacy is not a, oh, good, another foundation has popped up or, oh, wow, look at this opportunity for a a picture moment. It's a healing process that Everyone, I mean, Jesus Christ was an advocate for women, mm-hmm. for, you know, I mean, that's he what was one advocacy of the best is. Advocates. Exactly. <laughs> it's what it's all about. So, in their last few minutes, tell everyone how they can get their hands on this book that you guys have, have so miraculously put out. 
Well, Johnny? it's very simple. Uh, Motivational Press did. Uh, you can find out more at the Motivational Press website. Uh, but our books are available on Barnes and Noble and Amazon, hard copy and ebook, uh, online bookstores, and uh, pick up a copy today. You know, the most amazing thing is, you know, this can. We're all going to go through crisis, right? You know, just like Chris said, and you said, and. I mean, you would have never believed that 30 years ago when your son was born, that, you know, right. it would have been a quote-unquote crisis. Although, look at look at the, just like we talked about on your show, on our show, which, by the way, is on iHeart now. Um, okay. Yeah. You would never have believed the growth and the healing. But, um, you know, this prepares you whether you've been through the crisis, the crisis is new, or you're going to be in a crisis in the future. And uh, it's just, it's it's an amazing book, and that's the reason we're excited to see it up for a Pulitzer. Oh, that's amazing. And, that's amazing. And, and both of you, give everyone your, your uh, WWs so that we can, everyone can find you and hear your stories. Okay, well, I'm, can, I'm at, um, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go I'm ahead. at uh, www.emilyjerryfoundation.org. And, and Joni uh, Aldrich, J-O-N-I-A-L-D-R-I-C-H. Uh, please go to our Facebook page for Advocacy Heals You. And, again, people can learn more at Motivational Press. Well, and that's amazing. And, and the, the book way, is coming out when? Oh, it's out. It's yeah. out. It's out there. It's so people out. can get their hands on it today. Yes. And It, it is came out uh, October 1st. Okay. You. The, the letter U instead of I-O-U. Okay, that's Advocacy good to know. Mm-hmm. L- let me repeat and the name. Everything. Advocacy Heals You, 15 Keys to Fast-Track Results and Emotional Fulfillment. Well, Happy New Year to both of you. I'm so blessed that I was able to, that you fell into my path. And um, I'm just so excited to be joining you in the journey of advocacy and uh, I, I hope someday to be able to meet you, both of you in person and and I'm just grateful for the things that you shared with the listeners today. Well, thank you so much for having us, Renee. Thank you, Renee. All right. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. I hope that you will turn to their foundations, get on their websites, get a hold of this book. Let's make to 2016, let's make this a year of advocacy for whatever you need to do to help others, to serve others. And guess what? You're going to find that you're serving yourself and you're healing yourself by doing that. Have a great day. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye.